This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hello and welcome to Audiobook Connection, behind the scenes with the creative teams. I'm Becky Parker Geist and I'm your host. Audiobook Connection is your place to learn about the audiobook creative process in discussions between the authors, narrators, producers, and post-production teams that bring them all together, as well as guests who have listened to the audiobooks and have questions for the creative teams. This podcast is sponsored by Pro Audio Voices, helping great stories come alive through audiobook production and marketing. Hi, I'm Becky Parker Geist. I'm the president of Bay Area Independent Publishers Association and the CEO of Pro Audio Voices. And I am really excited to have with me today Elizabeth Rosner, author of The Speed of Light, a novel. Elizabeth, thanks for joining me. Hi, Becky. Thank you so much for doing this with me. It's really exciting. It's a pleasure. Let's talk a little bit about the novel itself, the book. I know that it originally came out the 4th of September in 2001. Uh, so that's some time ago from where we are right now in 2022. What are some of your strongest memories about that time, you know, which turned out to be unknowingly, you know, at the moment was right before 9-11, the infamous date that we all know so well. What were some of your memories about that time? Well, it's so complicated to look back because everything that was a before 9-11 moment takes on this extra fraught quality now because we look at everything through the lens of that sort of before-after time frame. But it was, it was truly the most exciting, thrilling moment of my entire life. I felt as though I had been waiting for the launch of this book you know, I had wanted to be a writer forever. This was my first novel. I had this amazing publisher, Random House, behind me that, you know, my editor and I were just so excited and full of anticipation about what the launch of the book would be like. And it was my debut as a novelist. So I did four events in three days that first week. And they were all in California, in the Bay Area where I live. And where the book is set, actually, the book is set in Berkeley. So I had my hometown audience, you know, I had all of this really just euphoric kind of emotional landscape all around me and inside me. And my father came out to California to be with me. My mother had passed away in the year leading up to the book's publication. So there was also this sense of, my greatest joy was accompanied by my greatest sorrow. And it turned out in retrospect, like everything was hinging on this fantastic moment that was then followed by this massive catastrophe. And, you know, I had this huge nationwide book tour planned and it all got canceled. The first day of my nationwide book tour was 9-11 that morning. Oh, my gosh. And were you in California at that time? I was about to go to the airport. 
I was about to go, but my publicist called me from New York that morning and said, turn on the television. And I saw the second tower hit in that moment. And like everybody else, I was in this complete state of shock because none of us really knew what we were looking at. What did it mean? And all she said was, don't go to the airport. And that first evening, that 9-11 evening, I was supposed to be in LA. And I said, but I can drive there. I can get there in time for the event at the bookstore. (laughs) And she said very gently, I don't think anyone's going to be there. And then the next day she said, you can unpack your suitcase and none of this is going to happen. And what was really strange over time was that because the book itself is about grief and trauma and resilience and how you get through the most horrific events of your life and also other people's lives, there was this way that in some ways I felt like, wow, I wish people would still read the book because I feel like the book might help people. It was written with that hope that it would help people know that even when you're deeply suffering and grieving, there is the possibility of still being in the world, still staying in the world with those you love. And even when you've lost other people that you love. So it felt both really relevant to the moment and also just like what could be worse than this moment. I think most of us were in such shock. We weren't even thinking about reading anything but the news, right? (laughs) Trying to make sense of this thing that felt so incredibly senseless. Yeah. And it was a time when, for a while, people actually stopped reading fiction. There was this big shift away from novels and back into, for the first time, nonfiction, because there was this intense need people felt to know more about what was happening in the world or to understand things more deeply. So not to turn my novel into this emblematic example of what people were thinking about in their hearts and minds, but for me, it was a watershed moment and it will remain that way. And so here I am 20 years later, I revisit it every year on that anniversary. It's an anniversary of my own in a certain way, but I think everybody also has their own story like that. Where was I? What was I doing? How did my world change? So that was how it changed for me. And so, as you say, now here we are more than 20 years later, and now you chose to do an audiobook of this book. So tell me about that. What was in your mind? What led to the decision to step into audio with this particular title? I had the privilege of doing the audiobook, being the narrator for the audiobook of my third novel. So I did continue to write books. I did continue to have a life as a writer. So Electric City, which was my third novel, I did the audio for that. And it was such a fabulous experience. I loved it so much. I loved connecting so deeply with my own words and my characters that way and hearing them in my voice out loud. And then following that, the next book I published, Survivor Cafe, which was a book of nonfiction, I also was able to narrate the audiobook of that. And so even more, I felt like, wow, I really want to go back to this novel that in many ways had an amazing life and then also had an abbreviated life. There were things 
that could have, would have, should have happened back then that didn't. And so in that sense of 20 years being somehow kind of a monumental epic frame of decades going by, I thought maybe now would be a good time to revisit that book and to really think about how it's still relevant. And ironically or not, I mean, I don't think it's ironic at all, actually. So the work I continued to do as a writer still related to so many of the themes that I wrote about in The Speed of Light, especially in Survivor Cafe, my book of nonfiction. Now there's official language, like measurable language for what I was writing about through those characters and through that narrative. It's a story about inherited grief, inherited trauma, how it lives inside our bodies, and how we work with it, how we live with it, how trauma changes us, and then how we can change again. And that's what I ended up writing about in my book of nonfiction all those years later. So it really also felt like a good moment to circle back to my earlier explorations of the same theme. I think it's really cool that you love narrating your own work. Most authors it's not a great fit to try and take that on because it's a whole different set of skills. But you love it, you live into it, and you do a fantastic job with it. So talk to me about what it's been like to record this novel, because this one is different in that we have more than one voice. So we have two professional narrators and yourself. And how has it been different from the experience you've had with other audiobooks? And what was this like for you? In a way, the voices that I heard in my head in this book were really always meant to come to life this way. It's just when I decided that I wanted to be one of the voices, I knew for sure that I didn't want to do all three of them. I knew, first of all, I should back up and explain to people who haven't yet read the book or heard the audio, because the novel is structured in such a way that these three voices are braided. They weave in and out very rapidly sometimes. Like on a given page, you might have two or even three different voices. And on the page, the visual cue for readers is that the font changes. I didn't want people to be guessing about who was who. I always wanted the reader to know, okay, now we're with Julian, now we're with Sola, now we're with Paula. But with the audio, I couldn't imagine how effective it would be if one voice was doing that shifting. And I never imagined it would just be one reader. And I certainly didn't think I had the skill to do a male voice, a female voice, and then a non-native English speaker. So the thrill of hiring these professionals who absolutely embodied these characters and were able to bring them to life in a way that far exceeded even my imagination and then for me to do the character that in some ways really is the closest to me autobiographically also made sense. I didn't want an actor to do the me character, even though she's not me. She's a part of me, as they all are a part of me. But I felt so privileged to be able to participate in this creation. It felt like another creation of the novel. It's like a recreation of the novel. I just wanted to say that the way that you structured the novel in the print edition, as you said, where you did it in different fonts, so there were sections, whether they were really short or longer, but it was divided out, which is a great opportunity and kind of a perfect scenario for a multi-voiced project. It absolutely 
fit correctly in that way in my mind. Let's pause for a moment. We'll be right back. There is nothing like a great book to transport you to new worlds. Here at Pro Audio Voices, we love working on projects that transport the listener. We pay attention to the details, like making sure we have actors that can clearly differentiate the character voices, making for a great listening experience. If you have a book that you would like to get into audio, and you're looking for a team with a personalized approach, Pro Audio Voices might be just the right fit. Come visit us at ProAudioVoices.com. So we had an interesting moment in production that I just thought it would be really cool to ask you about, and that is about the character of Julian. As a character, you were very clear about not wanting in any way to like diagnose him or put a label on him, put him in some kind of a box. And of course, Craig understood that and everything. But there was this really cool thing that happened. Cool in sort of the big picture. But I know it was a challenge early on as we sort of figured it out. What it really boiled down to was the perspective of the character from when they're telling the story. Why don't you talk about that moment and that discovery was what it felt like. What was happening for me was that I was listening to some of the samples of Craig's reading, and I could tell that he was performing this character as somebody really emotionally stuck. And again, like you said, I'm very reluctant to diagnose Julian. People had often asked me, oh, is he on the spectrum? And what's wrong with him or what's his issue? And it's not that I dodge the question. I just really make a point of saying he's Julian. He's not a disorder. But Craig explained that he saw Julian evolving over the course of the novel and that he was allowing Julian's sound to change by the end. It was sort of an epiphany for me too, in a way, when I was trying to figure out how to explain to Craig what I wanted him to sound like. And I went back to page one and the first sentence of the novel, which is a really important first sentence. And as a novelist, you struggle and struggle over how to start a book. The beginning of a book changes the most. Most writers will tell you that. It changes a hundred times, a thousand times. And yet that first sentence needs to contain all the information for me about what's to come. And so when I said to Craig, don't you see that he's reflecting back on the changes? At the beginning of the novel, those changes have already happened. And Craig, I wasn't seeing him, I was hearing him, but it was like I could feel his head exploding. You know, he was like, oh, I get it. And that this was all Julian remembering how he had gotten to this place. And so that really redefined everything that Craig understood about the character. It was an interesting moment. It was. I just wanted to call that out because I thought it was so fascinating and the way in which it became this revelation in the process of figuring out the direction for that narration. I want to say one more thing about it because it's sort of a writerly thing to say, but I think maybe people will find it interesting that what I was saying about the beginning being so crucial to the way a writer and a reader meet in that first moment and what the writer is kind of laying out for the reader subtly and invisibly sometimes 
but I had had a previous editor, uh, someone that I had hired to read an older book of mine. He gave me this incredible instruction that I've always really held close to my heart, which is the beginning of a book should contain the ending. And I loved that word contain. And it was really that notion that led me to that first sentence, the changes began on a Wednesday, miércoles, the day that sounds like miracles. That to me was projecting all the way to the end of the novel where these changes would be finally complete in some way. So I think that idea of a beginning needing to contain an ending, it applies to all kinds of artwork, I think. It forced me to be able to explain it in a way to this actor, this guy who was taking on this character. Speaking about insights and sort of revelations, what new insights have you discovered in the course of this process for The Speed of Flight? Anything? I think it's a brilliant way of thinking about a beginning. And the other great piece of advice he gave me, too, about flashbacks, in case this is useful to you, is that flashbacks always need to contribute to the forward momentum of the story. And I think this idea that sometimes the action just comes to a complete stop so that the writer can fill in background, it doesn't work. The reader feels like everything stalled, what's going on. It was noetic for you in terms of the science hadn't shown up in the world in ways that were making it clear to anybody else or that they figured out, but it was that knowing. Yeah, well, tracing my, my way back to something I said earlier about the kind of coming full circle with the themes and the issues and the material. So in Survivor Cafe, which is my most recent book, I was writing a lot about embodied, this embodied inheritance, this term we are now all hearing about all the time, epigenetics, and the way that traumatic experiences change you physically, change you neurologically, and then you inherit that. And it's complicated, but the point is really about what the body carries of memory and sometimes of inherited memory, memory that isn't even of your own experience directly. When I was rereading The Speed of Light after all these years, I hadn't reread the book in forever. So it wasn't just reading my sections as Paula, it was then reviewing the whole book as a listener. I was listening to all the characters, all the sections, and I was amazed to hear how many times I describe epigenetic inheritance. I keep on referencing, it was in my cells, it was in my skin, it was in my bones, it was in my blood. And that was before anyone was using that kind of language. It was just because I knew that stuff because I had lived it. And I knew it was true from my own embodied experience. And so I think the biggest aha for me of this project was realizing just what a through line there has been in my awareness, in my imagination, in my passion, in my effort to explain myself to myself, but also to other people, and hopefully to connect with their experience too, because it's not just the experience of descendants of Holocaust survivors. And I've been very clear about that all along, which is why Sola is in the book and always was a character from another time and place with another history of experience. So I think just to say that, that's been huge for me. 
I always knew it in my head and I sort of had that memory of writing about it. But now I was really seeing it on the page over and over again in all these different ways. Other insights or even flashbacks that you may have experienced as a result of working on this, bringing it back into your life. It was as if I and everybody else were catching up with the knowledge that was already inside of us. What would you say were any of the challenges that you encountered in the process? Well, the irony is that despite what a joy it was to listen to these actors doing these voices, there were also times when I thought, no, that's not how it should sound. You know, no, he sounds too excited. He should be depressed in that moment. Or, you know, at the realization that I just couldn't control every sentence, I couldn't control every sound. And so, even though as the writer of the book, I felt like, yeah, but this is mine, you know, it has to work for me. I also realized I wanted to relinquish that control too. These are actors who are interpreting these characters. And then I would say, in addition to that, and this is a very hard thing to confess, I found mistakes in the book. I'm not going to tell you what they are, but I was sort of horrified. I literally came across a couple of things that I thought, oh my gosh, I can't believe I, my editor, the copy editor, how did we all miss this? So that was challenging to my ego, to my you know, sense of perfectionism, all that stuff. So I had to let that stuff go and just say, no, this book is what it is. This is the form that it came in. So let's flip it around and let me ask you, what would you say is the best part of the production process for you? It was really interesting to just deeply listen to these characters as distinct voices, as really not just the voices in my head. They were fully inhabited characters who really had a life of their own. And they had been like that in my imagination. They were dimensional. They had reality to them all along, but it just took it to another level for me to the point where when I first met Craig and Anna in that first video call, I wish we had recorded it because it was so poignant. And they were talking about their impressions of these characters. And I was verklempt. I was so touched to hear that people were falling in love with these characters in a way, that they were prepared to become them and that they knew who they were. And so that was mind-blowing. And then I heard it when I listened to their voices. There's an image of Paula, the character that I read, talking about her voice. She's a singer. She's an opera singer. And so there's a lot about voice, literal voice in the book. But there's this saying in, I guess it's in Italian, a voce piena, which actually was the title that they gave it in the Italian edition. They didn't call it the speed of light in the Italian translation. They called it a voce piena, which means to full voice. And it's instruction in a text, in a score for an operatic singer to go to full voice. I feel like this book has come to its full voice now. You know, it's a book about voice. It's a book about storytelling. It's a book about allowing your sorrow to be song. And I feel like the book is now getting to be a song. It's getting to be out in the world in this new old, new, 
complicated, multidimensional way. And I'm just so grateful to everybody who helped make that happen. And what's next for you? Are you working on a next book? What's happening? The book I'm working on now is about listening. So it's the perfect follow-up to this conversation and to all the audiobooks of my work and all of these conversations I've been having with people over many, many years. I'm infatuated really with this subject of how do we become deep listeners? How do we practice deep listening with one another, with the environment, with the past, with ourselves, with the future even? What do we do to listen with our hearts? That's my exploration at the moment. So the new book is called Third Ear, How Deep Listening Reconnects Us. Everything we're doing right now is about the process of listening. Tell our listeners, if you would, how to best connect with you. Like, what's your website? That would be great. Yeah. So I have an author page on Facebook, but to be honest, I don't do a whole lot on Facebook, but I am on Twitter and I am on Instagram. I'm findable both those places. I think on Twitter, I'm at Elizabeth Rosner and on Instagram, I think I'm at Eliz Rosner. And then the best place, really the most thorough and comprehensive place to get information about me and my work and to communicate with me is on my website, which is elizabethrosner.com. Great. Great. Thank you. And thank you so much for being with me today. Again, this is Elizabeth Rosner, author of The Speed of Light, a novel. Thank you again for being with me. Thank you so much, Becky. Can I add one more thing? Absolutely. I wanted to remember to mention this, that when the paperback of The Speed of Light came out, there is an interview in the back of the book that Richard Zimler, a wonderful writer and dear friend, conducted with me on the page. So I would love to refer people to that as well, because I think they make a really nice uh, pair of interviews together. So the interview that I did back at the time that the book had come out and this wonderful interview with you now, Becky. Thank you so much. Thanks for joining us for Audiobook Connection, behind the scenes with the creative teams. Please take a moment to subscribe at audiobookconnection.com. The podcast is sponsored by Pro Audio Voices, helping great stories come alive through audiobook production and marketing. Learn more at proaudiovoices.com. Again, thanks for being with us, and please join us next week. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.